signs are going up in the yards, my TV's blowing up with advertisements, the 24-7 news is covering rallies, yep, it's another election year. But what can we expect this time? How's this election going to maybe affect the markets? Well, we're bringing in the pro, the Washington DC insider, it's Jeff Bush himself of the Washington Update, next on the podcast. Are you ready? It's the On The Money Podcast with Jerry and Nick Royer. Authors, radio show hosts, TV personalities, retirement wealth coaches. On The Money with Jerry and Nick Royer starts right now. Welcome back to the On The Money with Jerry and Nick Royer show. This is Nick Royer alongside my dad, Jerry Royer, and we're joined once again by Washington, D.C. insider Jeff Bush. Uh, We had so much fun with Jeff last time when we talked about the SECURE Act that we wanted to have him again back on the show immediately. Uh, and again, Jeff is the partner in the Washington Update. He has over 30 years of experience in the financial world and political world. And once again, welcome back to the show, Jeff. I appreciate you having me. Now, Jeff, between you and me, we have about 84 years of experience in the financial world. That's a lot of time in and around this type of stuff. But as a partner in the Washington Update, you have the perspective where you can talk about being a Washington insider, but you can also see things as a Washington outsider as well. How are you able to do that? (laughs) Thank you very much. That's absolutely a great observation. I grew up in and around D.C., so I have that from my roots, if you will. But I moved to the Midwest, so I became a regular person at that point and kind of got outside those Washington, D.C. circles. But I spent 30-some years in the financial industry, uh, combining that with an accounting degree, it really came together in this idea of the Washington Update, where I could bring the investor understanding and the clarity around Washington, D.C., and to provide that in a very nonpartisan way so that investors can get a, get a perspective as to what we anticipate happening in and around D.C. and how it might impact their portfolios. I think that nonpartisan perspective is important when we are talking about the upcoming elections. People are always looking for nonpartisan information, especially as we get into this election year. I'm looking forward to it. Sounds good. Me too. Awesome. So let's hop into this. As of right now, the Democratic field is still pretty crowded. It's narrowing quickly. Uh, Buttigieg is out. Tom Steyer is out. Heck, someone else could drop out as we're talking here right on the show uh, right now. So no matter what happens, depending on who the eventual nominee is, how do you think the markets might react? Well, I think it's a broad array. Our theme for 2020 is around volatility and volatility beyond just the markets, but volatility in politics as well. Running against a Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren is a very, very different Democratic candidate, obviously, than a Joe Biden or Mike Bloomberg. So I think the markets will react to that. If we see Bernie Sanders performing very well, winning lots of delegates, moving towards being the presumptive nominee, that will concern the markets greatly. Broadly, in in my sense, because you have the progressives not only attacking the financial industry, but the healthcare industry, the pharmaceutical industry, the technology industry, it's a broad swath of concern that would be generated by a more progressive candidate winning the nomination, in my opinion. Again, Nick and I are joined once again with Jeff Bush, partner in the Washington Update. We're talking about these elections and the markets. And Jeff, if the Democratic candidate wins the general election in November, no matter which side of the spectrum they fall on, no matter if they are more progressive versus more pragmatic, my thought is 
taxes are likely to be the focal point for the new administration. What are the possibilities of what would the impact be, especially given the current Trump administration tax policies? Well, you've identified one consistent theme amongst all the Democratic candidates, whether they're progressive or pragmatic. And what I mean by that is all of them agree that tax rates should go up, at least on the wealthy. Now, they disagree on exactly how to do it, but the one consistency is tax rates going up on the wealthy. Specifically, all of them would get rid of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Uh, That obviously would raise taxes on higher income individuals. Now, in order to answer whether the more progressive Democratic president could actually implement the more aggressive taxes, that would have to fall in line with the Senate. We need to understand what would take place in the Senate in order to make that happen. If the Republicans maintain control of the Senate, it's unlikely that a Democratic president will be able to ram through any type of major tax legislation. If, however, there's a 50-50 tie in the Senate, because remember, the Democratic vice president would actually break that tie in the Senate, or if the Democrats pick up at least 51 seats in the Senate, that's when we can see major tax legislation. You know, right now, inside the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, the personal tax changes, the estate tax changes, the tax changes for pass-through business owners, that entire part of the tax code is temporary, only lasting until 2025. But if we were to get 51 votes in the Senate for the Democrats and a Democratic president, we could have a brand new tax code as early as tax year 2021. All right, so let's talk local. The presidential election is getting most of the news, but there's the House, there's the Senate too. And I, I don't know if you're watching any of these state legislative races or any of these uh, governor's races. Are there any impacts there that we need to be watching for? We're watching gubernatorial elections for one reason only, primarily. And if you know, between 2016 and 2018, there is a distinct trend in Republicans losing governor mansions. So the question for 2020 is, does that trend continue or are the Republicans able to reverse that trend? But why we're so interested in watching the gubernatorial elections is the governor's sitting in 2020. Now, not necessarily elected because we elect governors in all different cycles, but the governor's sitting in 2020 that will oversee the next redrawing of the U.S. House of Representatives maps. Those maps are drawn after the 2020 census. They go into effect starting in election year 2022. And why it's so important is those maps last for 10 years. So if the governor sitting in 2020, they could likely dictate the majority of the House of Representatives at the federal level for the next decade. So it's a significant watch that we're looking at at the gubernatorial level. You're listening to the On the Money of Jerry and Nick Royer show. And once again, we're joined by Jeff Bush. He's a partner in Washington Update. He's kind of our Washington insider, you know. And Jeff, I want to talk about what you're watching in terms of which states might have a chance of flipping in 2020 or which states are likely to play a big factor going back to the presidential election and who ends up in the White House in 2021. Well, I agree with the most pundits and that the states to watch are uh, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. But I want to add one more to your thinking as well, and that's Florida. I don't know why Florida is not getting as much play in 2020. It definitely should be. Republicans flip Florida by less than 1% of the vote along with the other three. So it's not unimaginable that any of those four could flip. But why Florida is so important is you have to understand the electoral college map. If you assume California, New York, Massachusetts are going to go for the Democrat, whomever that is, and you assume that Texas and Oklahoma and Alabama are going to go for the Republicans and we bifurcate all the states we can, you're down to those four states. 
And mathematically, Florida is such a big electoral state that the party that loses Florida mathematically will have to win all three, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. And that's why it's such a pivotal state in my mind. And again, I'm not sure why Florida is not getting as much play as I think it should in 2020. I knew Florida was going to come up in this conversation. (laughs) And you're right. I'm not sure why the importance of Florida seems to be not making any news right now. Yeah, but my thoughts is it will as we get closer to November. Yeah, you're probably right. You know, let's talk a little bit more about getting down to the voters. In general, what's different about the voter base for both sides in this election cycle, Jeff, compared to 2016? Do you see anything different about the voter base on either side of the aisle? Well, I definitely see a much more agitated, much more engaged Democratic voter out there. Whether that translates into actually showing up at the polls, that's one question. I think what's more interesting is you have to look at where these people are excited and motivated and engaged. If they're excited, motivated, engaged, and show up in record numbers in California, it doesn't matter because we use the Electoral College, not the popular vote. You know, the Democratic candidate could could win 10% more vote in California, and it would not necessarily change the national election via the Electoral College. So it's also important to understand how motivated they are, but where they're motivated. If we see Democrats in some of these purple states get excited around, uh, you know, the Michigan, the Wisconsin, the Pennsylvania, the Florida, that's where I'm really watching. So I'm trying to find state-based polls to tell me how that process is working within those states. Well, what about the undecided voters? And what types of issues do you think are going to be motivating these individuals on Election Day? Well, that's a great question. Everybody's trying to figure out who is not showing up to vote, who is not uh, been expressed in polls and so forth. Uh, there's a lot of talk about the Democrats that sat out the vote, primarily the Bernie Sanders voters that were a little bit ticked off the way Bernie Sanders was treated in 2016. But then there's a whole nother blue collar, gray collar um, voter that didn't show up and didn't wasn't motivated to show up to vote for Donald Trump in 2016, but seemed to be more agitated, more engaged in 2020. So I think from that perspective right now, sitting where we are, you know, several months out from the election, I, I think it's somewhat of a toss up. And again, it's around where those people are motivated. How accurate are these polls anyway? I mean, look at 2016. There were huge numbers of undecideds who were actually Trump supporters, but they didn't want to say it. I mean, are there concerns about this type of thing happening again? I guess you could call it the silent voter. I guess uh, this same thing could happen on the other side, too, with progressive voters who haven't vocalized who they're voting for and maybe aren't being honest with pollsters. Well, that's a great point. And quite honestly, I think we all beat up the polling industry after 2016 for fairly good reason, but it really was our own fault. We misunderstood what national polls were there to do. We thought national polls were there to tell us who was going to be the next president. And that's not at all what national polls do. For example, if they're calling into California and they're showing that Trump has got horrible support, well, who cares? Trump's never going to win California via the Electoral College. So it's irrelevant. Understand that national polls only do two things and two things only. They influence perception and they perpetuate momentum. As long as you understand that that's the role of national polls, then you can kind of put them into perspective. And as I alluded to earlier, what I'm really looking for are polls at the state level and specifically in the states that actually matter. Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Florida. I turn on the news one day and hear one thing. I turn on the news the next day and hear something completely different. 
with so much unknown about how this election could unfold and so much more to learn with where people will actually show up in the polls? What do you tell people about how to handle what could be a very volatile year? Well, first of all, we have to have faith in the founding fathers of our country. They were incredibly wise in the way they structured our, our government uh, with checks and balances. And those checks and balances are constantly being pushed and pulled and tested. And we saw that through the impeachment process with separations of powers and so forth. That will continue. And that friction within our system is not a bad thing. It's a great thing. Now, it gets annoying. It, it, it creates a lot of noise. It gives the newspapers and the TV shows and all of that a lot of things to talk about in order to sell advertising. But bottom line, the real thing that voters need to focus on is what are their priorities and which party best represents them and more specifically, which candidate better represents them. What this country is lacking is an informed, engaged electorate. And, and left to, without an informed, engaged electorate, that gives the parties and politicians freedom to act however they choose to act. So we need to be more engaged. Jeff, we're just about out of time today, and we are so glad that you joined us for a second time on the show today. And any last thoughts you want to share with our listeners? Well, you know, I, I would leave it with this. I think Winston Churchill was a brilliant man in the way he spoke, and he gives us a moment of optimism. Uh, with a quote that he had back in World War II. He said, you know, you can always count on America to, to do the right thing, but only after they've tried everything else. So I am optimistic. All of these problems in our country are of our own making. And the good news is they're all within our power to solve. It's just a matter of finding that right political will to do it. And the only thing more concerning than an underachieving Congress is an overachieving Congress. So again, this friction in the system is good. It's not a bad thing. It just doesn't feel good. That's awesome that you brought that up. I love a lot of Churchill's quotes. And once again, we're so thankful that you took some time to join us on the show again today. And I hope we can sit down with you again one day. I look forward to it. Thank you. Folks, don't forget, we've actually put out a podcast on the coronavirus. So don't forget, you can go to onthemoneyshow.com. Onthemoneyshow.com. You can download all 78 of our podcasts right there. And then also you can go to our website, group10financial.com. It doesn't matter if you spell the 1010 or T-E-N, group10financial.com, for so many other great resources and free downloads out there for you to use anytime you want. And until then, once more, I want to thank you for your time, this time, until next time. So long, everyone. You've been listening to the On The Money with Jerry and Nick Royer podcast. Catch new episodes every week to discover the latest retirement strategies and tips for retiring well from Jerry and Nick. To subscribe to the podcast, head to onthemoneyshow.com. That's onthemoneyshow.com. Investment advisory services offered through Brookstone Capital Management, LLC, SEC-registered investment advisor. Group 10 Financial and Brookstone Capital Management are independent of each other.